Geekish Cast, episode 87. Kerwin, James Kerwin, of Star Trek Continues. Welcome back to Geekish Cast. I'm your host, Jeremy, and I am joined today by James Kerwin of Yesterday Was a Lie, R.U.R. Genesis, and Star Trek Continues. How you doing there, James? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. It's um, a huge boon for us, so thank you very much. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, obviously, right off the bat, I'm, I'm finishing my series of uh, Star Trek Continues people, but that is only a small, small part of what you have done. So if we can, let's go back to when you were little, James, mm-hmm. and at what point did you decide to uh, get into... Well, you know, let's start with this. Did you get bit with the acting bug? What was your background that got you interested in going into shows? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I, 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 I grew up um, really. Um, my, my my father exposed me to a lot of science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. my, my brother and I and my sister when we were growing up. Um, uh, Doctor Who primarily. I mean, that was my big one growing up. That was that was what I absolutely loved. Um, my first exposure to Star Trek was uh, there was a re-release of the motion picture, um, which my uh, my father took me to see at a double feature with Raiders of the Lost Ark at a drive-in in St. Louis, which was awesome, incredibly memorable experience. And so uh, that was my first exposure to Star Trek was was Star Trek One, um, okay. which is a, which is a weird in, in way to be introduced to the franchise. I know, but I was fascinated with it. I had always loved like movies like Two Thousand One and stuff like that that were just really kind of heady and made you think. And, and Star Trek One was was like that. Um, then um, uh, I, I he, he showed me the original series, um, but I was really really I think too young to appreciate it at that point. Um, but um, then, as you know, we got into the next generation, Deep Space Nine era. D- DS Nine is that's the one that's I guess kind of closest to my heart. That's the one that I feel like, you know, as I was growing up in my formative years, deciding what I wanted to do. That was really that was the show that was on, and uh, I just I, I something about the complexities of the characters um, and and the really nuanced storytelling that Ron Moore did and Ira Baer and those guys. It, it, I really I really liked it. Um, when I decided, you know, I, I did a little bit of acting in school, never really wanted to go into that professionally because um, I always kind of thought, well, I don't want to be the guy who's like looking to others to get hired. I want to be the one who hires them. <laughs> so so I, I really wanted to be behind the camera, I guess. And I started making home movies when I was when I was young. I actually did when I was when I was quite young. I did like Doctor Who fan films on our VHS camcorder and stuff that are embarrassingly bad, of course. Um, but, uh, I, I always kind of wanted to be behind the camera, I guess, and do that. So, um, when I went to college, I decided that I wanted to major in, well, actually I wanted to double major in film directing and, and astrophysics originally. Um, and I started doing that and then I realized that I would be in college till I was in my like mid thirties <laughs> at that rate. So, um, I decided to kind of just focus on the film thing. And, uh, so I did, and I got my degree in that and, uh, went from there. 
that's actually pretty impressive. Astrophysics as your is it that would have been your backup career? Yeah, then? exactly. I know everybody laughs at that, but you know, I I like storytelling and I like science fiction storytelling, and I think there's a there's a little bit of a tie-in. And 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 oddly, you know, being I I, I had enough to get a minor degree in astrophysics, which I did, and I've kept up oh, with okay. it a lot in, in my adult life, and it it kind of has served me well, especially when I'm directing a science fiction film or a project like Star Trek continues to have a little bit of that background, you know? Sure. Well, and you know, kind of amazing to me, I'm sure you're familiar with the band Queen. Of course. Yeah. Well, Brian May is the Dean of Astrophysics at yes, Oxford. That's right. That's yeah. right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, so to me, I mean, it's not, it, it's odd for me to hear that an artist has a background in astrophysics, but not that odd because many times, Creative people are also really rocket scientists when you dig dig deep into it. It, it is it, it's a you know it's a beautiful beautiful discipline and it is artistic in and of itself. I mean, there's a lot of math involved in it, um, mm-hmm. but there doesn't have to be. I mean, there's theoretical branches of astrophysics like cosmology and things like that that don't involve a lot of that kind of computation equation. We, we you know let the computers do that. We're focusing on ideas more and. Um, I, I really always love that stuff because there's a great artistry to the structure of the universe. I think. Well, let me let me ask you this then, and we don't let's not get too deep. But um, how do you feel about faster than light travel then? Well, faster than light travel is fine. Um, we don't know. We we can't do it yet because we don't have sufficient energy to. But there's nothing that would. Okay, here's the thing: faster <laughs> faster than light can't happen. I mean, we can't go faster than light. But what we can do is we could theoretically fold space using a wormhole or something like that to take shortcuts um, th- to, to other points. So it's entirely plausible. The, the amount of energy involved would be immense <laughs> um, and nothing that we can remotely approach now probably. But um, as far as being able to, I mean, warp drive kind of got it right in a sense that they're not, you know, they're not actually going faster than light. They're warping the structure of space-time and going through what they call subspace to be able to to actually get to another point more quickly than light would be able to. So um, as far back as that was, I, I think they were on to something. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I just always like to pick at that one because I have heard both sides of the argument that, okay, well, no, you can't go faster. Like you were saying, you can't go faster than light, but you could do... You know, punch a hole into another universe that's the same but much smaller, travel through there, and then punch back out when you reach your destination. For me, I find it fascinating, but I, I'm a plumbing salesman, <laughs> so it's all theoretical to me, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 um, it is theoretical. It is hypothetical. Um, yes. But uh, it's, uh, it's definitely something that uh, I would not exclude from the realm of possibility one day. There are things in Star Trek that I would, but not that one. <laughs> oh, well, what's what's one that you would just cast out out of hand? Uh, teleportation of of a, right. of a macroscopic object, particularly a living being. Never, ever going to happen. It violates too many laws of physics. Well, it, the one that's always bothered me about that is I can never get my head past the idea that it takes something, replicates it. Don't you have to kill your yes. yes, you do. Yeah. You do. You yeah. do. And And you would never be able to replicate as complex of an object as a human being by storing the data in a computer because of, I mean, first of all, Heisenberg uncertainty principle prevents you from being able to measure the position and vector of every particle in the human body. You can't, you can't just kind of estimate. I mean, you get one particle wrong in the brain, the person's going to be totally different. You know, it's not, 
you can't, you can't, there's no guesswork involved. You would have to be incredibly accurate. And no matter how sophisticated our, um, our technology ever gets, we can't break the rules of physics. And that would well, really break the rules of physics. Not only that, but I've always been curious about, we're, we're not a single entity, really. Our gut is full of entire colonies of living things. And so is our skin very often. That's true. That's true. And, and for us to be moved, that all has to go with us. And I just, that's, <laughs> so two things, I guess two things about transportation have always bothered me. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, but, but it is a great storytelling device and it serves a purpose. And with a lot of science fiction, you have to be able to say, look, I know, I know that that's not possible. It's never going to be possible, but it serves the purpose of the story. So let's just go with that. Let's, uh, you know, suspend our disbelief and go with that. And uh, and I think it works. Uh, they, they do it quite well in Star Trek, and they even address, like in TNG, when they said, oh, we have Heisenberg compensators. I mean, that was their little wink to the, <laughs> to the astrophysics audience saying, we know we can't really do this, <laughs> but we're just saying we have a way to. So, um, but it, like I said, what's most important in, story, in science fiction is, is the storytelling, not, not the technology. The technology is great as far as opening up your imagination, but it's got to serve the story and it's got to serve the characters. Right, and Star Trek was actually very big, usually on telling a story where the science fiction was just involved in the storytelling. Yep. More than, yeah, absolutely, more than absolutely. Cavalry writing in. That's right. Um, so let me see here. So after you went to school, well, you know what? I, I still you did you did some acting. Did you do that? Not no. I mean, just very minor theater kind of stuff. Okay. School plays, a little. I one or two professional things right when I graduated from college, but nothing. Special, like I said, it's just never been something I really wanted to do. Okay, so you definitely knew that you were going to go more behind yes, the camera. Yes, uh-huh. I I do see you've got some editing credits. Am I am I reading this wrong, or is that like some of your earliest work was? Oh, well, that's no. I um, you know, it's it's there's an interesting debate among directors of whether you should edit your own content or not, and there's two distinct schools of thought on it, and I can really see it both ways. I've directed things that I haven't edited, and I've directed things that I have. Um, I kind of prefer editing myself if it's if if okay like if it's an auteur based project if it's a feature film that I had the idea for I originated the idea for I wrote the script for I had a very specific vision I would want to edit it as well as directing it if I'm doing a directing for hire job if I'm working for a series or if I'm if I'm brought onto a project without being the originator of that project then I can see the advantage of turning it over to a third party editor. Uh, in the post phase. So I can see it both ways, but I, I do sometimes edit my own work and sometimes I don't. Okay. Yeah. Well, because what I've noticed with uh, some of the small film people I talk to, almost all of them started off in editing and then went into whatever, you know, directing hmm. or whatever side they did. So I'm, I, that's probably why that jumped out at me because very often I see that. Right, right. Yeah. And like another friend of mine, uh, Don, uh, Don Adams, who I've actually had on the show, he used to work for Full Moon Films. And he's done other stuff. He goes, but if you ask the IRS, I'm an editor. <laughs> <You know? laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So what was um what was really the first professional job you landed where you were like, okay, I I've got this thing. I can, I'm in the film business. Um, after I graduated, I went to college in Texas, and I stayed there for uh, several years after I graduated, and I uh, would direct or produce. Um, uh, Corporate videos or videos for local bands, um, short films, things like that. So you kind of cut your teeth in a smaller market like that. 
Um, and that's when I, I, I would say I really started you know, getting professional credits. Um, and then a few years later, I, I moved to Los Angeles uh, with a friend of mine. And um, uh, I actually got brought on to a couple of theater companies to start doing a lot of theater directing, which I had very little background in. Um, didn't have a lot of, of, of theater courses uh, in college or anything like that. And, um, you know, theater directing is, is an interesting, uh, it's, it's, it's very different from directing film. Um, mm-hmm. because ultimately, I mean, there's, there's a lot of elements that you don't have control over. And ultimately when the curtain goes up, you've turned control over to your actors. Um, and in film, it's very much the opposite. Um, theater is an actor's medium and, and film is a director's medium. Um, but I learned a lot doing it and I still do do it from time to time. Work for a great theater company here in Los Angeles um, called the Blank Theater Company, which is run by Noah Wiley, actually, and, and, and a, uh, a, a wonderful director named Daniel Henning. And every once in a while, they'll bring me on to do something. And um, it's a lot of fun. And it's a, it, it's a challenge, especially having come from a film background in which you have so much control uh, going into a background, going into a, a a feel like theater where at, at a certain point you have to totally surrender control. It can be disorienting. Um, but uh, I, I, I do like it. I, I, I enjoy it a lot. Um, and then after that, I got the opportunity to direct my first feature, um, which is a science fiction, um, kind of a, a cult science fiction film noir um, mystery uh, for a studio called Entertainment One. Um, and uh, it's called Yesterday Was a Lie. And it stars... Um, Chase Masterson from uh, from Deep Space Nine and Kipley Brown from Enterprise, who's also our Smith in Star Trek Continues, and right. um, Peter Mayhew from Star Wars is in it. A lot of science fiction actors wound up being in it, and it's it's kind of a it's one of those heady science fiction films like I was talking about earlier, um, and that was the first real big commercial feature that I did. Um, not and, and by big I mean it didn't have a massive release, but it was released commercially uh, late I guess late two thousand nine, and then few months later on DVD in early 2010 and it's, it's still around and you can see it. Um, so that was my first like major thing that I did, I would say. Okay. Uh, so were you a star Wars fan as a kid? <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I was, um, not huge. Um, okay. uh, star Wars is the first movie I actually remember going to the theater and seeing. Um, I don't remember a lot of it cause <laughs> But um, the, the very first release, um, but uh, I, I had all the action figures and I had all the spaceships and all the Kenner toys, you know, um, and I, 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 I was a Star Wars. OK, I, I would say, you know, fan means fanatic. Was I a fanatic? No, but I liked it a lot. You okay. know? Um, but it, I did, it didn't it didn't hold the same kind of appeal for me that Doctor Who did. Like I said, that gotcha. for whatever reason, that was the one that that really uh, I latched on to. Well, see, in, you know, Modesto is where I live, and that's George Lucas's mm-hmm. hometown. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think you and I were actually born the same year. So, I mean, when I was four is when Star Wars came there out. There you go. And my life has never been the same since. <laughs> and and the, the reason I was thinking that is, like, if I met Peter Mayhew, I might just pee myself. I mean, maybe not a whole lot, but I'd pee a little bit. <laughs> He's actually a really, really sweet, sweet man. He, he, he and his wife are both. They're, they're, they're wonderful people. And uh, they, did, they did us a huge favor by coming out and, and being in this. this was a, that, that film was a very tough film to shoot because it was, um, it was all nights. Um, 
it's set in this kind of um, almost like an alternate reality in which the 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 diesel pump kind of style of the 40s never mm-hmm. went away and so okay. they've got like IMAX and, and cell phones but every they drive cars from the 40s and stuff and so and everything's in black and white and everything's everything is always at night um so it was and there's smoke everywhere so it was a, it was very it was a it was a rough shoot but uh, he was a real trooper it was it was a lot of fun to work with him is that movie still available? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna, that's going on. Yeah, my you can check it. out. I mean, you can get the DVD at you know retailers anywhere, or you know, I'm I think it's on. Uh, I mean, you can buy it on iTunes. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so Amazon probably carries it then. So absolutely. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um. So that was like your first real professional credit then. I had a couple of smaller ones before that, but that was my first feature. Yeah. Okay. That was released commercially. Well, you know what? I, I got to stop and ask this since you are a Doctor Who fan. I didn't really get into Doctor Who till the new series, but mm-hmm. you apparently, you know, were quite quite cognizant of the originals. Who is your Doctor Who? Which one's your? Okay, doctor? well, here's that's a <laughs> that's a loaded question, and here's the way I, I guess, here's the way I always is. answer that question uh, for fans of the classic series. Um, the, the question really should be phrased: Who is your Doctor other than Tom Baker? Because because everybody's going to say Tom Baker, okay? I mean, like especially if you grew up in the United States, because he was the first one that PBS bought over here and that was showed. When you're a little kid, you you see Tom Baker. He's great. I got my dad when I was like eight or something. My dad brought me to a local convention in St. Louis, and I got to meet him, and I was just totally started like like I I couldn't speak. I was so starstruck, and it was amazing. And I still remember every second of that interaction. It was great. Um, so um, of course I would say Tom Baker. Other than Tom Baker, second, a close second, I would actually say Colin Baker, um, the sixth doctor. Um, I, I really, really loved the fact that he brought a very unique interpretation to the doctor that was never done before or since. Kind of a darker, edgier side to him, um, who wasn't afraid to do things um, in the name of justice, always in the name of justice. But he would, he would push some boundaries that none of the other doctors would ever do. Um, even the modern doctors like, you know, like David Tennant, who had this horrible guilt trip of pushing the, uh, the spider down the hole. I can't remember the name of the, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, but like Colin Baker would have done that in a second. Oh, you're dead. Boom. <laughs> He's, he was a very different kind of doctor and I loved his edginess and I loved, um, uh, the writing during that period was not great, um, because of horrible turmoil that was going on behind the scenes at the BBC between the showrunner and the story editor and the executives at the, at the network. And that was very unfortunate for him and Nicola Bryant, his companion, that they were not given that grade of material to work with, but they both rose above the material. And I remember even as a little kid watching that thinking, wow, these stories aren't as good as like a lot of the other doctors were, but I really love the rapport between these people and the way that they're, they're interacting with each other and his performance. And if there was a point that I could say, I ever said to myself, I want to do that. I want to be behind the camera and work with people like that. It was that. So um, that always has a special place in my heart. And I got to direct Colin Baker in episode four of Star Trek Continues last year, which was an amazing, (laughs) amazing. I was going, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Because that, was that almost surrealistic? Oh my God. I couldn't, I, yeah, yeah, yes, it was. It really was. It was a great, great experience to have to be able to say, like, bucket list checked off. Yeah, you know. that one was taken care of. But that wasn't the first episode of Star Trek Continues you were involved with. That's correct. 
were you? Let's see here. I came on in episode three. Which is my favorite, actually, of the whole bunch. Well, thank you. Now, you, yeah, you did the teleplay, or you wrote that? One? I, I uh, wrote. I have. I did the teleplay on it, and I directed it. Oh, you, okay. You did both. Yeah. Yeah. I that episode is fantastic. Well, first off, how did you get involved with Star Trek Continues? Um. Well, uh, I had known. Um, we're touring around on the festival circuit with Yesterday Was a Lie and a lot of science fiction conventions for a while. Um, and um, Chase introduced me to Vic Mignogna, um, who does a lot of these conventions as well, because he's got a very strong following in, in anime. And there's a lot of crossover fandom with anime and science fiction. And so I knew Vic peripherally. I didn't know him hugely well. Um, but a couple of years ago, um, Chase and Kipley and I decided to do... Um, a uh, start developing a project called RUR, which is based on the 1919 Czechoslovakian play by Karl Chopek. Um, and uh, we're in the process of developing it into a feature, but a couple of years ago we decided to shoot a sh- uh, what's called a sizzle reel, which is basically a short film um, in the style that the feature will be done that you can use to kind of show, show financiers and studios what, what you plan to do with the feature. And uh, we were looking for a, a male lead in the short, and I thought of Vic, and, I, and again, they didn't know him very well, but Chase knew him quite well, and so she called him, and he, he agreed to do it. While we were working on that, he uh, was finishing up the first couple episodes of Star Trek Continues, <clears throat> and he said, uh, which I didn't know anything about, I really didn't know the Star Trek fan film world hardly at all. Um, I was a- aware peripherally of some of them. I had seen of Gods and Men. I had seen a, cu- a couple of uh, Phase 2 episodes, but um, very peripherally, and uh, he said, well, hey, I've got this, this fan film series, and, uh, and I'd like you to, to, to watch these episodes, and I did, and I was just floored. I was like, this is exactly like the original series, like I remember it. He said, would you be interested in coming on and, and maybe writing and or directing an episode? And I said, yeah, that's, I, I'm, I'm so impressed by the quality, and he said, you know, the thing, my, my vision has always been, I want to create a the original series, but I want to do it with a, with, with good people, with friends, with, with solid, good people. And B, I want those people to be at least the, the actors and the department heads to be industry professionals, to have experience and know what they're doing um, in production. And he said, that's why we have the quality that we have it. And, and I said, I'd love, I'd love to be a part of that. So I came on for episode three um, and uh, the rest is history. I stayed on. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, that, okay. So, Ferris of them all was your first. Like I said, I that might even be the first one I had watched of Star Trek Continues. Um, I thought it was an outstanding episode. Also, you did some things directorially that I always find interesting to see. There, especially noticed. I especially noticed it in the uh, Kirk and Spock scenes you shoot past small things in the environment at the characters. Uh, so you'll have something in the foreground, and you'll shoot past that at it. I, I love that kind of stuff when directors do it. I don't know what it is. Like, when I see somebody, like, film a scene, and they shoot through a car window, but still, you know, it's still just a scene. I don't know why I like it, but I, I really appreciate people that take the time to set their scenes up like Sure. That. Well, you know, the thing is, is that, and thank you, uh, no matter what your budget is, I'm a big fan of Shane Carruth. He's a director who directed Primer and did Upstream Color a couple of years ago. Um, great, great science fiction 
low budget films. And, you know, what he's always said is that no matter what your budget is, um, and we don't have huge budgets on Star Trek Continues, but he said, no matter what your budget is, you can always take the time to compose your shots well, because you plan that stuff out in advance. You storyboard, you think about it in advance, you, you ruminate on it, you ponder it, and you, you think of the most interesting way to tell the story with your composition. And composition is just, I love that as a directorial tool. Um, you can't go as crazy with it on a series like Star Trek um, because you're, as you can say in like a feature film like Yesterday Was Lying, which the composition was, was um, very creative. Um, mm. in, in Star Trek, you're trying to, to, to follow the, the style that the show has already been established. And, um, and in, in particularly in a show like Star Trek Continues, we're not only, we not only have our style, but we're, we're basically following a style that had been established 50 years ago. So you're a little more restricted as a director when you're working in a series, but that's, that's typical. That's common. That's all TV, oh, sure. all television series are like that. Um, so you can't quite get as crazy creative, but you can do fun things like that. Yeah. So well, yeah. also you guys you guys shoot on an old old style format a four three format yes so it, it's like an old TV show yes um, even though it's high def and everything I mean I to me that's one of the things I love about it because I I really feel like I am watching an old episode when I put it on um, matter of fact just recently I watched Mirror Mirror and then Ferris of them all back to back that's a fun thing to do especially because we recreated that last scene. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's just it, because it picks up right where it left off. You know? Well, you have to be really – like, like here's one thing that, that I and, and our cinematographer, Matt Busey, really, really like to, to pay careful attention to, which is shooting it in a way that would have been shot back then. Yes, we're using a high-def digital camera, but they shot it on film back then. They shot it on 35-millimeter film, so it oh, yeah. was high-def. You look at the Blu-ray transfers, that's 1080. I mean, they – it was high def. It just wasn't broadcast in high def at the time, but now it is. Um, so, but film stock, particularly, you know, 35 millimeter film stock from the 60s has a very specific way of picking up shadows and light and color and grain. And we mimic all of that very, very carefully. We use the lights that they had back then and we put them exactly the way they would have done it. We use the same type of lenses that they would have used then. We use, um, we grain the film. We, we, we grade the film, which is, which is called color timing. Basically you go in in post-production and you, you manipulate the image to look as close as you can to 35 millimeter film stock from the sixties without going too crazy with it. I mean, right. yeah, I mean, if you go too far, it looks, it starts to look bad, but well, you um, start getting cartoonish, yeah, exactly. a caricature of the exactly. World, and yeah. we d- and that exactly. And so that's, and that's, that right there is a good summary. I think for the whole way we approach the show, we, we try to ride the line, we balance between doing the way things would have been done back then, but also remaining cognizant of the fact that we're doing this in 2016 for a modern audience. So right. we, we, striking that balance is a constant, constant thing that's on our mind. Well, it, since we're on the, the 60s versus the, the, the teens, I guess, um, one thing I noticed, and I brought this up a little bit with Vic, so... In, well, what was that, the White Iris? I know what you're going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there is there is very much a difference in storytelling now compared to 50 years yeah. ago. Because first off, you're going to watch it again, and you might watch it again tomorrow. But we will have continuity where they didn't have it yes. before. 
Yes. So the one thing that pulls me out, and you know where I'm headed with this, the one thing that pulls me out on on this show is that it's very internally referential to old Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're writing, when you're doing these things, are you cognizant of that? Do you think about that? Or am I just being way too nitpicky? We are super cognizant of that. And here's the thing. If you go through our episodes, you will see that some are and some aren't. Um, Mm -hmm. Some are basically outright sequel episodes. Other ones may peripherally refer to things that happen in other episodes. Other ones don't refer to things at all. Um, And so striking that balance is, and here's why, because one thing we do is we, we listen, we, we listen to fan letters. We do listen to fan feedback and you, you can't, you can't get married to that. I mean, you have to, you have to, I mean, ultimately the vision is Vix, but we do listen to what people say. When we go to conventions and people come up to us and talk to us, we listen. And we have found that the desire of fans to have this completely replicated in the 60s style and never have any internal continuity references, and the fans who want sequel episodes, want callbacks, want fan shoutouts, is almost exactly 50-50. Oh yeah, um, you're damned if you're damned if you yeah. do. You're damned so, if you so don't. So we yeah. we have made the conscious decision to try to keep about a fifty fifty ratio on that stuff because we're never going to please everybody, um, but we can try to give everybody some of what they want. Um, the reality of the situation is is that we are making a Star Trek fan film series in two thousand sixteen. It's not nineteen sixty nine. It's not nineteen seventy. There is a huge universe. Of, of canon continuity that we now have to be cognizant of that they weren't back then. Like in the Lani that you talked mm-hmm. about with Nick is a perfect example. Would they have referenced something in Enterprise back in 1969? Of course they wouldn't have, but we have to, because if we don't, we're breaking canon. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we, we have to be aware of the full universe. We have to, we, we can't like say to fans, oh, screw next gen, forget DS9, Forget all the fond memories you have of TOS and always wondering, hey, what happened to, uh, to uh, um, uh, the, the mirror universe? Or how did Kirk feel about Edith Keeler after she died? And, I mean, these are questions that pe- some people, not everybody, but some people have been asking themselves for 50 years. So we want to honor that. I mean, we want to we give people some of, of that because that is what people want today. That's what about half of people want. And then half of people want the self-contained, totally original idea kind of episodes. And, and, and I think we deliver those as well. So that's that it's, it's, it's a line that we're constantly cognizant of, believe me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to put too fine a, a head on it. I'm just kind of interested in how, how you as the writer and director have approached it. Cause you know, I imagine it'd be real easy to go off on total continuity uh, fan fest and just go like, "Ooh, we can reference this. We can reference that." Yeah, and we and we try not to do that. I mean, our our, our basic rules are, and and especially when it comes to things in latter series, we mm-hmm. we reference them either if it's like a one off throwaway, almost wink <laughs> that doesn't really matter. Right. Like there's a reference to the Zindi that Chekhov makes at some point that's just. You, bear, you, you blink and you miss it. It's just a passing fun little nod. It's nothing. Either it's, it's a, just a throwaway thing like that, or it's something that we really have to do in order to, make, to keep continuity, like, for example, in Lalani. We couldn't tell that story without referring to why suddenly the men are in charge on Orion. So it had to be addressed at some point. So um, that, that's kind of what we do. We, we, we're not going to do an entire episode 
about, you know, the Borg or something or the Cardassians. I mean, we're not going to do that. It's not, that's just not what we do. So, right. And then the most recent episode, uh, come not between the dragons. What, what role did you do in that one? I did not look. Uh, come not between the dragons. I, uh, had, uh, not that huge of a role in that episode. Um, we were shooting that episode and episode seven concurrently. So I was focused more on seven, which I directed and wrote, um, six, I did a pass on the screenplay, so I have partial teleplay credit, but really gotcha. the main okay. writer of that one was Greg Dykstra and amazing guy came up with the, the, the concept originally and, and, and brought it to fruition. And then Julian Higgins, the great director that we brought on to direct, to, uh, to direct that episode. Um, so that was, that was kind of there. I was there, but it was really their baby. Mm-hmm. So number seven, Vic told me I can't find anything out about. Is there anything you can share without getting sent to the principal's office? Well, we share. I mean, we've shared a few things about it. It's called Embracing the Winds. Um, it's going to be released on September third. Uh, the premiere is going to be at Salt Lake Comic Con, um, and uh, Bo Bellingsley um, uh, is one of the stars in it. Um, he he was in Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, He's the captain of the Bradbury that Spock gets assigned to, if you recall. Um, he's playing a different role here. He's playing a Vulcan vice admiral in Starfleet. Um, and the, the episode also features Claire Kramer. Uh, you know her from, from Buffy as Glory. Um, and she, she's one of our guest stars. And it also features the return of Aaron Gray as the Starfleet Commodore that she played in episode two, Willani. Um, so all of those people are back in this episode, and there's more surprises too. So I think it's going to be it's 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 going to be an interesting episode. It really deals with um, um, a timely social issue, as I, I think a lot of the good TOS episodes did. But I can't say oh, anything well, more than that. That's fine because well, come out between dragons kind of tackled a heavy heavy topic yeah. that I don't want to. I want people to go watch it. I don't really want to dig into it, but it's it's kind of a heavy topic that I thought was handled quite well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hey, can I can I share real quick my Aaron Gray story? Sure. Years ago, when when uh, my family we lived in Santa Cruz, uh, WonderCon was still in San Francisco back then. So one Saturday morning, I found out about it. Got the kids. We drove up to San Francisco, and I'm going through this one room, and I look over, and you're you're my age. You remember Buck Rogers and Silver Spoons mm-hmm. and all that. I had the biggest crush on Aaron Gray when I was a kid. <laughs> So I'm going through this room, and there's Dirk Benedict and all these guys, and right at the table next to Dirk Benedict is Aaron Gray. I stand in line to get her autograph. I get up to the front of the line. I can't get two damn words out of my mouth. <laughs> I felt like the biggest, just the biggest hoser on the planet that day. Yeah. My, my wife had to actually ask for her autograph for me. <laughs> That's how I was with uh, both Tom Baker and Colin Baker when I met them when I was a little kid. <laughs> so I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. Um, it was it was it was great having her back. You know, it's an interesting thing about her is that you know people said, and she even asked me like, why did you bring me back for this episode to, to reprise this role? And uh, you know, if, if people have seen the series, they know that in Lalani she was um, not um, not the nicest person. And right. um, you know, there's there's this kind of almost like a trope in Star Trek, and it and it, and it really kind of took off in the later series of of the mean Starfleet flag officer that Kirk has to call for permission or something, you know, and, oh, sure. and, uh, and I always kind of thought, you know, why, why are all so many of the Starfleet flag officers jerks? <laughs> so I really wanted to kind of show another side of that character. And she plays a very, very prominent role in this episode. And you can kind of see some of the issues that she's dealt with in her life and her career and why she had to make the decision that she did in Lalani and, and things like that. So, 
Um, I, I felt strongly when I was originally writing that episode, um, you know, that I, I told Vic, I said, I really want to bring Commodore Gray back for this one because uh, I want to explore that character a little further. And I'm glad we did. Well, that's excellent. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about the 500-pound gorilla in the room? No, <laughs> but I guess I have to. <laughs> no, you don't have to at all. It's, it's, you know, because yesterday when Todd and I spoke, it didn't even come up. Yeah. Uh, uh, which, by the way, Todd told me you're a genius, and after finding out about your astrophysics thing, I see what he was talking about. Todd's a great guy, man. I, I, it's, it's such a pleasure to work with him. It, it really, it's such a pleasure to work with Vic and all of every actor. I mean, I can't get, sit here and give them all shout-outs. But yeah. um, we got such a great cast. I mean, and, and, I, and Vic has to take the credit for that. I mean, he, he assembled it before I was there. Just, just, just everybody. Everybody's wonderful to work with. So much fun to get together. And, and, awesome. and do this. Um, I, I have to tell you, well, I, I guess I might as well say this on air to somebody, but getting ready to speak to Vic. Now, I didn't know about Vic's anime backgrounds. I didn't realize oh, wow. how big. Yeah, see, I didn't. Yeah. I quit watching anime in the 90s, you know. Um, so I didn't know. Now, with Todd, I knew because as soon as you Google him, I mean, it's, you know, it's a list as long as your arm. Okay. But so from watching Star Trek, so, you know, here's the thing. So, like my wife said, she sees him, she goes, well, he's got that kind of dick swing and swagger you expect from Jim Kirk, you know. So I'm like, yeah. And then I'm thinking, so here you got a guy puts together a show so he can play James C. Kirk. And I'm thinking, this guy's going to be a diva. And it is so far from the truth. Yeah. yeah nah, so, not at all. <laughs> yeah, I was I was so impressed with him when I spoke to him because I'm thinking, you know, but, you know if you uh, write a show where you write yourself in as the star, sometimes you expect a little something, which kind of leads us back to the 500-pound gorilla in the room. <laughs> Um, not that I'm naming names or anything, but, uh, so because of somebody, Paramount CBS released Star Trek fan film guidelines. You are thoroughly into the Star Trek fan films these days. What are your, what are your general thoughts about the new guidelines? Uh, I mean, wow. What, What can I say that hasn't already been said? Um, I completely understand why mm-hmm. CBS had to do that. Um, I, uh, it's, it's unfortunate that the situation got to the point in which they did. Um, but I can see that they had no other choice. And, you know, the thing about Star Trek Continues is, is that um, we have... We've never... I don't think and we've ever really done anything to uh, – in fact, I know we've never done anything to, to violate the Star Trek franchise or to violate CBS's um, trust that we're, we're not doing this for the wrong reason, so to speak. You know, um, yep. uh, when, when, when we've been given the opportunity to monetize this, we, we turn it down universally. Um, we understand – the fan film rules are you can't give yourself paychecks. I mean, that's just, that's understood. Every fan film production for over 10 years has known that you can't give yourself paychecks. Um, so, um, uh, we've, we've, we've always done every single thing that we can to stay on CBS's good side. Um, and I think that, that, uh, that speaks for itself, you know, um, as for the guidelines themselves, you know, um, they're pretty strict. But like I said, I understand why why they were put in a situation in which they felt they had no other choice but to do that. 
Yeah, I think that's really that's that's really all there can be said yeah. about it. I mean, we know why they were why it happened. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, certain people are acting like it's not because of that, but I I don't know how you square that circle. So you know, anyhow. well, look, I you know, I, here's the thing, I, I don't. I was not involved in the fan film community in any stretch of the imagination before I got involved with Star Trek Continues. And I'm still really not that much involved in the fan film community, to be honest with you. I peripherally know a few people on Phase 2 or um, uh, Renegades or, um, or uh, Axanar. And um, I've, I've got – I have a, a few friends on each of those projects and, and on a few others as well. And um, I don't bear anybody any kind of ill will. Um, I don't. I don't see what what, what that gets you. Uh, but like I said, <clears throat> cardinal rule: you, you you don't pay yourself to, to do Star Trek fan films. You just can't do it. Um, and uh, if you do that, it's 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 gonna come back and bite you in the ass. <laughs> you know. I mean. And uh, I, I so so it's hard for me to 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 wrap my mind around why anybody would deny that, you know, like, of course that's what's going on. That's of course, that's what happened. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, nope. it's one of those, like this, no, the sky is actually orange. No, it's not. <laughs> this is what happened. So it just own it and admit it. Okay. This is what happens and uh, move on. I, I don't, I don't get the, I don't, I guess I just don't kind of get the, blowback against it or why anyone would fight it or want, want to try to fight CBS on something that they own. I mean, it's, they own it, you know, well, for me. Yeah. For me, the, what I find the most unfortunate is I'm seeing fans kicking and screaming and clawing at each other over it. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, God guys. <laughs> yeah. This is, the, this is, I mean, this is how civil war starts. Yeah. It's terrible. I mean, I don't, I hate to see that in fandom also, because that's not what Star Trek is about. It's not what it's ever been about. Now, let's be honest. Star Trek fandom has always been contentious. I mean, (laughs) even in the early days of conventions um, before I was born, you know, I hear stories of people getting into huge fights at conventions about a canon canon element here or this or that or the other. How many starships are there? And, you know, I mean, people, Star Trek fans love to fight about (laughs) headcanon. They always have. Which is fine, you know, as long as it's done healthy, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but, like, talking about, like, boycotting CBS and Paramount and stuff like that, I'm not, oh, no, please don't, don't. That's, we, we, we all love Star Trek. I mean, we're all in this because we love Star Trek. So watch it, you know. Yeah. Watch the new movie. Watch the new series when it comes out. It's, it's, it's a great thing. We all, you know, play Star Trek online. We all, we all love it. So... So don't please don't be at each other's throats about it. I guess that's that that's all I can say. And just let you know let the dust settle. Um, listen to the podcast that John Van Sitters did today, or well, by the time this airs, it will have been a little while ago, um, in, in which he talks about the details of this. Um, you know, it's not it's not all doom and gloom. Which, which podcast is it's that? It's called Engage. It's the official Star okay. Trek podcast. Oh, the official Star Trek yeah, one. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, it's not all doom and gloom. So just you know. Just chill. That's all I can say yeah. to people. Well, yeah, and you're right. Star Trek, there's always been internal fights. Yeah. I mean, you know, just look at people fighting over that Franz Joseph uh, technical. Oh, my God. Or, yeah, see, stuff like know. that. And and it's just like, are the books canon? Are the games canon? Are the 
comic books canon. Well, no, they're not. And uh, sorry. And then people get enraged when they're not canon. And then it's okay. And is the animated series canon? And then people argue about that. And I mean, it's it, we got other stuff to do in our world, guys. You know, <laughs> let's not argue about that that much. Like I said, healthy debate over figuring out little things here and there is interesting. And it's an interesting intellectual exercise to wrap your mind around stuff like that. And, and I think that's wonderful. But when it gets into name calling or harassing other people or trolling other people and things like that, that's that is not in the spirit of Roddenberry at all. Wouldn't appear to be. No. All right, James, we're coming up on time, but I do have one more question for you. Sean Connery, greatest Bond of all time or the greatest Bond of all time? I'm a George Lazenby guy. Get out, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know what? I actually hold that up as one of the better, as like one of the top movies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Well, because they actually go off and do something new with it. Yes, they did. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Lazenby, I think, was was perfectly good in the role, Um, but you can't beat that, you know, side eye from Sean Connery. (laughs) No, you can't. You know, (laughs) shitty one line slinging kind of thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. All right, so uh, give us the projects you're working on and where we can find out more about you on the uh, Well, like I said, uh, just go to jamescurlin.com. I've got stuff there. Um, if you're interested in checking out sci-fi noir, more heady kind of science fiction, please go rent or buy Yesterday Was a Lie. Um, I, I can't uh, tell you uh, enough about how proud I am of that, of that film. And uh, like I said, we're uh, in the process of working on developing RUR into a feature, but if you're interested in seeing the short film we did, just go to rurfilm.com, and uh, you can see the short RUR Genesis film there. Excellent. Which is slightly uh, not safe for work, so just just fair warning. Don't watch it at well, your job. People, you know, people shouldn't be watching movies. <laughs> they shouldn't be watching movies. That's right. <laughs> let's, let's, you know, I'm not saying I've never done it. Come on. All right, James, thanks a lot for joining us. Um, everybody can find us at geekishcast.com. Our Facebook page is at facebook.com slash geekishcast. I tweet from at the geekishcast. Oh, yeah, James, uh, your Twitter, do you give that out? It's just James Kerwin. One word. There you go. Yeah. Can't, can't get much easier than that. So we will catch you all next time. Thanks again, James. Thank you. <laughs>